0: Back on the program today is Mr. Dustin Garl, Managing Principal at Nuclear Fuel Associates. Dustin has over 40 years experience in the global commercial nuclear fuel markets, including marketing and sales contracting for natural uranium, conversion, and enrichment services. He has substantial experience with nuclear utilities, uranium production companies, trading houses, and service firms globally, including past posts at Rocky Mountain Energy, New Exco, Portland General Electric, and Paladin. Dustin's work in the uranium sector includes negotiated term contracts in excess of three billion US dollars over his career, involving a number of nuclear utilities worldwide. Dustin, it's a pleasure.
1: Well, good morning here from uh, the mountains of Colorado where we're moving toward winter. So
0: no surprise. I notice it's uh, substantially colder where you are compared to where I am, but it's also doing more raining here. So Dustin, for the audience, I just wanted to highlight to them that you and I've just recently spent a few days together this year before the September WNA conference. And it's been since late 2017 or so, since we first met, thanks to the introduction back then from our mutual friend, John Borjov. You know, looking back, going back to 2017, it's been a constructive and patient five years, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, you know, I think one thing you've learned that if you're gonna be involved in nuclear and the fuel cycle, you've gotta have patience you know, this is a long-term industry with, uh, you know, not a whole lot happens
0: overnight. It
1: can happen, but not very often.
0: Well, certainly the last two years have been pretty speedy compared to the previous three. So we're looking pretty good there. And (laughs) after a decade of pretty tough times and nothing but negativity surrounding the sector, all of a sudden now we have a constant stream of tailwinds, which has been a complete reversal, quite enjoyable. And, you know, at this point, because we've become so patient, it's okay to let this drag out for a while and let our capital work in the meantime. But let's jump into a broad topic here to start off. The production readiness of restarts and development projects globally constrained to the next five years. When I look at the sector of juniors out there, meaning not the Camecos, the Kazata Proms, BHP, U-1s, or Oranos of the world, or any other state sponsors that I didn't mention, but the juniors. I struggle to see many of these production narratives actually getting over the finish line. You've seen this before, and we know the success rates are very low. Do you see the capabilities, the staffing, technical expertise, etc., to supply cake in a can in the quantities, the timelines, and at the prices that all of these juniors promise on their slide decks?
1: Well you know Andrew you're quite correct I think over the years uh we've had depending on the, the the perspective on the market we've had a lot of companies kind of come and go in the the junior space some were only exploration types uh but you know some of the purported developers actually just as an aside one of the senior marketers from Chevron years ago gave the term pretenders to the to some of these companies but talking about the restarts, I mean, we have Boss with uh, Honeymoon uh, has said that they're now made the decision to restart that project, you know, get to two and a half million pounds in a couple of years is what they're, they're saying. We've got Paladin with Langer Heinrich, you know, a mine that, that I know well, um, you know, making the decision to restart. Now, this sets aside MacArthur. I mean, you know, that decision was finally made to take that mine out of care and maintenance. But it is interesting, for example, uh, when they made that announcement, Cameco said they were targeting five million pounds of production this year. Uh, I'm hearing that it's now down, I think they announced to two million. And, and it may we may not even see yellow cake in a can till mid-November or so. So I think that now having said that, you know, that that they had kind of flagged it, that depending on the availability of personnel, and which has been challenging, but they were gonna bring the mine up, you know, in a safe manner. And I think that's absolutely true. The mines like Cigar and MacArthur are complex. Uh, water is an issue. You have to be very careful. And so, but you know, the, the production there is uh, is pretty much committed forward. Cameco is not a spot seller and and they've pretty much been, as you know, in the market since what 2018 or 19 to get sufficient contracts to restart MacArthur. So kind of setting that aside and and looking at, you know, at the juniors. um, You know, Lotus has got Calakira. Uh, They were in uh, London. I know they had their marketers there. We've not seen any announced project. Or, excuse me, any announced term contracts yet? And then the other just yesterday, or I guess on the 5th, uh Global Atomic announced a contract for uh, the DASA project, you know, with delivery starting in 25. And I know that uh, their CEO has said they could deliver starting late 23, but I think they're probably buying 24 as a, a cushion year. So, you know, we start to see some forward movement encore you know they've got i guess three contracts for the rosita restart and that seems to be going fairly well so you know i think we'll but then you start adding up all that capacity and you know with uh, the biggest one being langer five million pounds eventually but they said it will take i think 18 months give or take but you start adding all that up and it's probably no more than about 10 million pounds. Then you have to start looking at other new developments. Trust me, it's gonna take long-term contracts at acceptable prices. And we can kind of get in that uh, area a little later, particularly in the conversion and enrichment side. But until, you know, the price that they can get in the long-term market, I think is above 60 at least, but, uh, you know, UX just dropped their long-term price from 50 to 49. And I'm hearing there are a couple of producers that may be actually offering, you know, in a hybrid pricing model. So it's got spot price at time of delivery with floors and ceilings and then some kind of a defined price that they're offering around 50. And, and I'm just I'm kind of surprised at that. Because, what you know, we're seeing, I I am doing work uh, with Deep Yellow, and, you know, what we're seeing is with cost escalation and supply chain issues and personnel, you know, that old $60 to 65 I think, in the industry is really we're looking $70 plus for most of the new developments. I mean, they can talk about, you know, all in sustaining costs. Well, that's not all in cost. So I think you have to be very careful when you look at that. So, and again, it's personnel. You know, I think uh, the decision to move forward uh, on either a restart or certainly a new development, you've got to be comfortable that you can hire experienced operational permitting, financial, you know, the kind of the whole breadth of capabilities in a mining company. Um, and I think they're finding that, that those that come in from the, quote, outside may struggle a bit because uranium is different because of the regulation, you know, the processing, the transport. Um, so I think that's kind of where we are. It's it's as you and I have talked, we're beyond the, the theoretical that, you know, the price was so low, uh, you know, there's no way we can move forward. So we're cutting cutting our budgets. We may get a little bit of money to optimize and review our project, but nobody was hiring except for, say, a deep yellow. Mr. Borshoff has hired a uh, complete company of experienced people. But other than that, I think that's where investors need to be a little careful and certainly do due diligence on, you know, who will be doing this, That's certainly one question. And the other question is uh, if and when contracts are secured, what do they look like? You know, and, and I know that's not been part of the due diligence for a lot of the investors, but I think it's now on the table where they should say, well, you now advertise you've got X number of contracts. Kind of in general, what do those look like? What are the base prices? What are the components that are of, Open to spot keep in mind that the spot price components tend to have a collar and the floors i'm hearing may have moved from 30 to maybe 40 and the and the ceilings may be 70 approaching 80. but if you think the market's going above that it puts a, a limitation on the upside refer to the cameco pricing table in their quarterlies And it shows up to about 70 80 dollars they participate pretty well but if it gets above that the spot price they've got uh, you know they don't they don't get that so that's something that i think the investment community
0: now you know should be asking questions about yeah you're gonna have to dig deep to get all those terms out of those and that's a big component of the valuation part that people don't often just skim over and make some assumptions when they probably shouldn't be doing that. I mean, in general, in a raging market, you can get away with a little bit of slack there, but yeah, I agree. It's something that needs to be looked at and the staffing issues, be careful, I might send in my resume. Um, (laughs) And then the other thing with on the restarts, there's four big question marks and you mentioned a couple of them. As far as restart capability, do you get the nameplate, you use the word eventually, eventually You know when is that? (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. with respect to Cameco, I mean, even Cameco, uh, this has been delayed, might not see anything till end of the year at this point. We don't know for sure, but it's definitely had challenges. The first guy out of the trench with respect to signing up on long-term contracts at a price level that's very questionable in this market with respect to cost escalations that are happening. I don't want to be the first guy out of the trench. In this case, that's a tough one to, to choke down as well. So I think there are a lot of challenges here, and when you and I sit down and look at the success rates, boy, there's going to be a lot of failures, which is going to lead to a lot of excitement as well in this market. So anyway, thanks for covering that off. I think that's a good piece to start out here. Switch gears, come over to Russia, Ukraine, the impacts there on the war and the updates coming out of the fuel cycle collateral damage that's happening.
1: Okay, well, I think it's important for the investors to know that the shipments from Russia to the West, principally the uh, European Union, which is close to 30% dependent on Russian enrichment, um, and into the U.S., where the dependency is like I think 22% right now, uh, those shipments are still happening. The material is flowing um, because it's been Uh, pretty much exempt from any sanctions or uh, transportation issues, although I'm hearing insurance uh, may be uh, more and more difficult to obtain for those shipments, not surprising. It's interesting because the utilities are focusing now on longer-term uranium contracts, and I think we'll get to conversion and enrichment in a minute. But they are starting to, you know, kind of switch their focus over to uh, uranium. And, and, you know, they're in this transition period, as it's so-called, over the next four or five years, moving away from Russian sourcing to the West. But what we're seeing is the issue is with the Russian fuel continuing to flow, it does make the procurement decision-making very challenging. So in other words, do you uh, enter the Western market, if you want to call it that, and cover off on your Russian-sourced deliveries in the anticipation that those are somehow interrupted? And it's not necessarily from our side or the European Union putting sanctions on that fuel. It could come from the Russian side. I'm hearing that the annual revenue of the material shipped into the U.S. is less than a billion dollars, which sounds like a big number, but apparently at, you know, higher oil prices, that's the daily gross revenue that Russia gets from their oil. So the argument that, oh, they'll never interrupt the, the shipments because they need the revenue really doesn't hold. You know, you can then try to gauge, well, what's the probability of those shipments being cut back? being terminated, being, you know, who knows. So if you're a fuel manager, uh, you've got to step back and say, well, do I go out and contract for an equivalent amount of say uranium? But what if they keep delivering? Then I've overcontracted at what would be higher prices. Yeah, the word on the street, and I've spoken to some fuel managers where the Russians were always low cost. You know, you'd be talking to other suppliers The Russians would come into town and they just, you know, undercut the market big time. So, you know, if you commit in the current, even in the current market, let's just say the term price is certainly below 60 at this point. Let's pick 55 as a midpoint. And, you know, your uranium contained and enriched uranium product is, you know, still in the 30s from the Russians. Well, you know, you could pay a real premium And then you theoretically don't need the material. So it's a very difficult situation. And the word on the street is the utilities are trying to hold down that base price by giving up like extension options. You know, there was a recent contract signed that had a six year base and a three year option that the utility had in their favor. So they're only going to trigger it if the market is you know, um, in the favor of the, is the market is not in the favor of the utility and they want to keep a, an existing contract going. And the other is annual flexibilities because they were, you know, say plus or minus 20%. So if you've got a 500,000 pound contract, that's 100,000 pounds in each direction around that base quantity. So they're apparently willing to give that up uh, in order to hold the price down. So that's kind of, you know, kind of where we are. Um, the russian Ukraine situation, it just is still there. And, you know, there's threats of the use of nuclear tactical weapons and all kinds of things. So it's not, it's not like, quote, getting better. So the utilities, but they face the dilemma of, you know, the, the word is some of the contracting is to cover off needs that they hadn't covered off pre-invasion. So they're just filling out their portfolio with the Russian component still there. So when do they make that decision remains to be seen. So that's kind of where we are with the Russian fuel flow. It's still going on, and we'll see what happens over literally the next several years. It's not a matter of just this year. You know, some of the EUP contracts in the U.S. go to 2030. So, you know, it's an issue that's going to be there for a while.
0: Okay, so I want to skip to that. So on this recovering term to use here with what we have, more confusion, but also likely more demand because a lot of Western utilities or some of them, they've been overweight Russia prior to the war. They were overweight coming into this good coverage period of, let's say, three to five years out or even further. But now are rethinking their sourcing book exposure because of the war sanctions and pressure. Do you see that this really ultimately leads to transitioning away from Russia supply in some cases of some of these utilities, but also the end result here is increased demand?
1: Oh, I think there's no question of that, Andrew, and we'll get into the demand side, I'm sure, in a minute. But the utilities really have to give serious consideration to non-Russian sourced fuel. I mean, we're, we're hearing that everywhere. So it's not just a few. It would be a courageous fuel manager, first of all, to not look at options. You know, what what can we do? What's the time frame? What's the cost? What's the supply reliability? Keep in mind the Russian deliveries had 100% reliability from the mid-70s in Europe and 1980 here in the U.S., so they had developed a 40 year plus history of always meeting their deliveries. I mean, there was no question of that. So now the uti- fuel managers have to step back and say, well, how do I replace that? I can't do it overnight. There's not enough capacity in the West because as you say, the utilities had been committing to Russian origin material and that had led to cutbacks in Western suppliers, not just on the uranium front, but also conversion and enrichment. So, you know, the the Western, let's call them supply sources, you know, had not invested, no way. Uh, You know, uh, conversion and enrichment capacities were dropping in the West because the utilities were sending the message that they were willing to commit to the Russians for a pretty large percentage really when you think about it so you know that's kind of where we are with the utilities that in general the market is is talking bifurcation in other words there will be russian material available but you know and it will be at lower price lower cost but you know who will then buy from them because of the uh, supply security issue then there'll be the west which will be higher cost but theoretically uh, more reliable. You know, after the, uh, just to touch on Kazakhstan, when they had the social unrest right after the first of the year, the, you know, the utilities started to talk more and more about diversification, that yes, these guys are the biggest producer, we will depend on them for a certain amount of our fuel, but, you know, should we really begin to look at other sources for some of our material? You know, I'm being told, for example, Namibia is now rising up on the the list of preferred uh, uranium sources, and there aren't a whole lot of options there. So again, it, it's an interesting time because there's just, as you know, as you know me, I'd say there's just a lot of moving parts. But the demand in the West is now escalating, where before it was. You know before all of this happened even toward the end of last year the general consensus was uranium demand would increase at a percent to a percent and a half a year out into the future which was okay it's better than declining but that had you know assumptions about chinese reactor building the middle east the u.s would remain stable but The perception now and the government policies and the studies we're seeing, I mean, coming out of London, you know, as UX uh, said after the conference, the future has never been brighter for nuclear. And when you really look at it, uh, just to touch on it quickly, the demand side, like you say, in Europe, France was going to start cutting back. They've now turned to they're going to start building more reactors. The Belgian keeping two reactors operating. The Netherlands wanting to build another reactor. You know, the Germans, you know, they were their last three reactors were to be shut down at the end of the year and decommissioned. Well, they're keeping two of them operating because of the energy uncertainty. you know, looking longer term on the net carbon side, we're just seeing, you know, studies of, from the International Energy Agency Um, And they're saying that they did an interesting study because they said, well, if you want to get to your objectives by 2050 to 2060, you really need to do more than double nuclear. It's got to go from the current 390 to 400 gigawatts to like 820 gigawatts by 2050. And that's extension of reactor lives. That's new big reactors. That's a big impact of SMRs. And then the International Atomic Energy Agency just updated their forecast. And they now are saying in their uppercase as many as 870 gigawatts by 2050. So again, the the longer term studies are all extremely positive. You know, Korea was going to phase out their reactors at the end of their operating life. They changed the government. The new government has said, oh, no. We're going to extend operating lives. We're going to restart construction of a couple of reactors. And we're actually on the upslope rather than down. So, you know, it's happening globally where energy security, the role of nuclear in uh, net zero carbon has been fully recognized. You know, the EU taxonomy. This time last year, all we were talking about was with nuclear and natural gas be in the EU green taxonomy, which it has been included, but now, you know, kind of the events have overtaken that. And same in Korea, you know, they have a green taxonomy and they just made sure nuclear was part of that, which helps the financing side. So it's kind of everywhere you look, uh, and we'll get to Japan in a minute, but it's just, it's mind boggling, not just the issues that are on the supply side, it hasn't really improved and where demand is looking. I mean, it's just, you know, literally no less than a doubling in, in, by by 2050.
0: Yeah, it's all very positive in the congregation of events. could have never been predicted even by the smartest analyst out there. With some of these things you mentioned, when I mean, you talked about Namibia being a more highlighted preferred source now, or African projects, if you want to look at Niger. Nobody wants to build anything in North America generally. Nobody wants to build anything in Australia with respect to new projects. So it, it's really interesting now that you have preferred buying coming back to the West, but still Australia, North America, and that Canada, U.S. don't want to build anything new. And then you've really got to come back to just Africa. And there's really only two proven supply sources in Africa, which uh, obviously one's more preferred than the other. But it is quite challenging, and UX to come out and say it's never been brighter, yeah, and I don't think they're referring to the light from the blast. Um, yep. you mentioned the use of weapons, uh, the fear spin that's coming out of the war with respect to commercial reactors. The anti-commercial nuclear group's audience in effect has been substantially cut off in the recent years in my view. I mean there's very few. I mean just the reduction in social media is an indicator with respect to some of these anti-comments where almost nobody is following them anymore if you look at it from at least a retail media standpoint. I want to come back, Dustin, to transportation now transportation continues to be quite a debacle, whether it be logistics coming out of Russia and Kazakhstan or attempting to get regulation, specs, procedures, and infrastructure in place to handle Class Seven IAEA rules for transport out of the new jurisdictions, which are being contemplated, or new routes being contemplated that have never handled uranium export. So a lot of this, to me, probably fails, and any success will take a lot of time. But what are your thoughts on two areas of transportation, both uh, transportation with respect to Russia, which you covered, but also Kazakhstan transportation issues, and then also new jurisdiction aspirations to potentially transport uranium through new jurisdictions, which don't have anything set up.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. You know, transport has been an issue for literally decades. I spent some time with Jack Edlow in London, and for those that don't know Jack, you know edlo has been one of the major nuclear material transport companies for decades and so jack has been at the the forefront of all the issues kind of that you you point out so keep in mind class 7 material which is radioactive is not a welcomed cargo on a lot of shipping lines you know there isn't enough material we think it's a big flow but the, the you know that they're moving all kinds of other commodities and products and all that. So to get someone that will move Class seven is, is, uh, is challenging. I can recall when we were, when I was at Paladin shipping out of Walvis Bay, there was one shipping company that would make port calls there once a month that would handle Class seven. And there were some months they didn't show up. You know it wasn't a, a a port call for them. so just kind of in general it's been you know difficult and now with uh, what we're seeing uh, first of all russia you know keep in mind uh, other than materials shipped to the chinese the kazakhs were shipping all of their uranium out of saint petersburg so it went by rail across russia to the port at saint petersburg well that route is really not available. Let's put it that way. So they're, for example, looking at alternatives, and one in fact is through China to Shanghai, which uh, I, I know they're they're looking at that. But the other is the Trans-Caspian route, which you know goes out of uh, you know Kazakhstan, uh, you know through I can't remember exactly the countries, but the material has got to be handled several times. You know, it's got to go on, you know, ships and then offloaded, then rail and then loaded back on ship. Ends up in the Black Sea. Um, I was told that the route works, but they need to get uh, permits for the bigger volumes. So they're working with the countries involved. But it's like five times the cost of the rail shipments to St. Petersburg. So it can work. But, you know, what are the delays? What are the costs? Uh, I was told the Black Sea is not a particularly secure uh, location. You know, the Russian Navy is still uh, very much the presence there. Uh, So, yeah. And and insurance rates. You know, what companies will insure, you know, nuclear materials, you know, being shipped open ocean? I've been told that there are some companies with Kazakh uh, deliveries that are flying material out of Kazakhstan in order to make, you know, take it to the Western converters. So, yeah, transport just for existing production centers isn't, let's call it smooth sailing at this point. Then you talk about new production areas, you know, for example, uh, you know, shipments out of uh, Kalakira. You know, what we did at Paladin is we moved that material by truck all the way to Walvis Bay. Now, I know Lotus is looking at shipments out of Dar es Salaam, which is closer, but then you have to say, well, how many shipping lines that will handle Class Seven make port calls on that side of Africa? I don't know that because we looked at it and decided it really wasn't viable, you know, back 10, 12 years ago. Now I know that again, Lotus is looking at it, and they're they're very positive about it. Uh, there's a project uh, in what Mauritania, and uh, you know, out in the desert that's being proposed. And I kind of looked into that. And then you know, the the port facilities aren't really designed for you know larger ships and class seven carriers. I'm not sure they make port calls there. So, you know, I think that's something when people say, oh, well, we're going to be the next producer. And then you go, well, there's a lot of issues here that need to be addressed. And, you know, and like Jack said, you know, transport is not improving, let's put it that way. And it's going to be an issue going forward. You know, it's fine. Again, if you ship out of Walvis Bay, I think you'll be okay. If you ship out of, uh, adelaide or you know darwin or something that should still work but it's a difficult part of the industry let's put it that way
0: yeah i think you don't have to reinvent the wheel here and if you're going to (laughs) attempt sometimes it makes sense just to use the same old route that you always had with respect to lotus i mean good luck with that uh we'll see it down the road but uh i don't think it's going to be smooth sailing as you stated to looking at alternative routes stick with what worked last time and Just moving it through where you have to get out of Walvis Bay and the various custom stops and dealing with the officials and brown bag lunches, et cetera, to get out. But, you know, good luck trying to get a new port on board and get all the infrastructure in place and deal with the specifications and regulations associated with that. It's very difficult, as we've seen. You know, we've seen this attempt out of Peru, for example, Dustin, for many years. It's the same old song and dance. And now it's been proven out because we followed this for many years. It just doesn't happen as as quickly and as smoothly as people think it does. And the other thing, Andrew, that the investors need to realize
1: are the working capital implications. So if you're a producer, I don't care who you are, you get paid when your material is book transferred to a customer at a conversion facility and what most of the long-term contracts allow is for the customers to set the delivery date so for example like cameco if you look at their delivery schedules a lot of material is delivered fourth quarter because that's when the utilities set delivery so so material that okay let's say namibia you produce at husab um it goes to the wall port at walvis bay Hopefully it's, you know, a ship comes in once a month. You load it on the ship. It goes all the way to Houston, loaded on a truck, goes all the way to Metropolis, Illinois. It's accepted into the converter. And then you could wait months before you then transfer it to a customer. And then it's 30 day payment. So people say, well, the producers hold six months of inventory and therefore that like is gonna affect the market. No that's basically part of the supply chain that you have to carry in order to meet your delivery commitments. And if you're big enough, the utilities call the delivery location. So you've got to keep inventory at at Metropolis, at Cameco, at Arano. So again, that's a big working capital commitment. you, You may produce a pound and not get paid in Six, seven, eight months when it finally gets delivered at a converter and paid by the utility. So, again, these are all things that most people aren't familiar with. They think, well, you produce a pound in Najir and it's at the gate and you get paid. No, that's just starting the transport saga for that material.
0: Yeah, definitely a big cash flow issue for a junior, no doubt. And that's the biggest issue that juniors generally have is money. And, of course, proven minerals in the ground, but that's another conversation. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So, very interesting. It's going to take a lot of time here, and you know, I commend the effort to try to open up new routes. The, the issues going through Turkey, whether it go through uh, Istanbul or, or through the land passage there as well, down to the other port that I don't remember the name of. Good luck on getting all that stuff set up. It's going to require a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of sweat, blood, and tears. But in this <laughs> current situation yep. with respect to the Russia-Ukraine war, we can throw blood into that as well. Let's move on here and talk. Let's get go over to enrichment for a moment, and then we'll move on to some of these other issues as we go. And Enrichment service pricing. We've seen enrichment contracts long-term north of 120 SWU at this point. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? And where do you see this going as we are starting to likely near the incentive pricing for potential capacity expansions? Of course, that being with a lot more commitments and still many years away. Well, just kind of on the enrichment side in general, and I think the investors and and certainly
1: uh, some of the junior producers are realizing that you've got to look at the fuel cycle kind of, let's call it holistically you know, what's happening in conversion, what's happening in enrichment. And to just back up a little bit, you know, again, with the Russian penetration of the Western fuel markets, the big enricher in the West is Yarenka. You know, they got plants in Germany, the UK, the Netherlands, and the US. They gave a presentation at the World Nuclear Fuel Market in 2021 and they put up an interesting slide that showed that their capacity peaked in 2015 and was on the downslide not huge chunks but as the centrifuges wore out they weren't being replaced because the swoo price had dropped and they made it very clear they said you know we need prices 120 150 in order to replace the centrifuges to even consider any expansions because these are high-tech machines that require special materials, uh, special technical uh, competency. And and so they were sending out the message uh, even back then. Then we went to the Montreal conference in June of this year, World Nuclear Fuel Market, and you know, the same group of suppliers, um, which included uh, conversion, got up and, and basically gave a, a, a status report. Now, it is interesting. Let me just read a couple of quotes. The uh, presentation by Malcolm Critchley, the president of Converdyne, the first slide he put up was long-term contracts that justify the investment and assure utilization of the additional capacity are an absolute requirement for them to expand. And we can get to conversion in a minute. But also, you know, Arano, which has their own enrichment plant based upon URANCO technology. They're not one of the biggest enrichers, but they are centrifuge. You know, they have led with expansion of Arano enrichment capacity will require long term customer commitments. And then later said, based on lessons learned before investing into new capital intensive capacities, producers will need long term contracts with the right prices. And basically Cameco gave the same message on the uranium side. So, you know, Andrews, you and I have talked the industry can expand okay it can build more enrichment it can build more conversion it can eventually produce more uranium but what the the suppliers in unison in concert are saying is it depends on you the customer and they basically said it from the podium in montreal with a lot of US fuel managers there, they said, the future of our capacity will be determined by your actions as the customers. And it requires long-term contracts. Now, Converdine put eight to 10 years on that. And they said, you know, without off-ramps, with, you know, firm commitments at much higher prices for us to even look at expanding capacity. We will not do it on a build it and they will come kind of mentality. That's just not going to happen. So now we're, we begin to look at what are the markets done? And yeah, looking at SWOO, at the end of last year, new term contracts were listed at $61 per separative work unit. Well, the latest price as of the 3rd of October is $135 for new long-term enrichment contracts. So, you know, the price is obviously more than doubled for enrichment. And if you look at spot where there's very little SWOO transacted, that's gone up uh, two-thirds from 56 to 92, but there's really not any material around. So that's kind of how the enrichment market has reacted. And so, you know, Yarenko has said, well, yeah, we're beginning to look at what does expansion mean? They have an internal project called Project Sunflower, which I thought I kind of liked, but they said, we've got to look at what does it mean technically, supply chain, people, you know, financing, uh, on and on and on. And they've said it's four to five years to really get the supply chain in place to try to expand enrichment capacity. Now, before we leave enrichment, there's been a lot of talk about underfeeding versus overfeeding of the enrichment plants. For several years, Yarenko in particular did what's called uh, underfeeding. So they were committed to to deliver a certain amount of enriched product to the utilities. And for that, the utilities were committed to deliver a certain amount of uranium in the form of natural UF6. But the enrichers could change the operational strategy where they put more enrichment into the process and basically diverted some of the uranium. In other words it is being likened to an orange squeezer you know you you put more pressure on and you get more juice out from the same orange so they were diverting like a, a six million pounds a year selling a couple million into the spot to cover their costs but most of it was used in long-term enrichment eup contracts where they could then provide their own uranium to make those deliveries Anyway. A bit complicated but that's what they were doing well now they can do the reverse you know they can overfeed they can put more uranium in with the same amount of enrichment which is limited by their capacity and then create more of the product which has been looked at from early days on the the russian ukraine situation is well what if eup Uh, is is interrupted. But what they found was there wasn't UF6 available, which is the form of the uranium that's needed. The rumor was they were looking for 10,000 metric tons of natural UF6, which would contain about 26 million pounds of uranium. And they only found 1,500 tons. So the overfeeding is really drastically limited by the lack of natural UF6 and Urano said they're not even looking at it because there isn't any UF6 available so that's kind of what you know people have looked at the enrichment side and i think with the appropriate contracting which is now going on that you know Urenco in particular will look at expanding but they said it's years in the making so that's kind of what we're seeing on the
0: enrichment side Now, I appreciate you covering that off because it was related to a question that we had from one of the audience members, which we appreciate that coming in with respect to the interview that was done by Energy Intel and Orano's convergent enrichment head, uh, Jacques Pathieu. Uh, Forgive me if I hacked it, but uh, (laughs) regarding the underfeeding and overfeeding situation, not having enough UF6 and the time involved to switch over between the processes. And so some of the market participants might have this misinterpreted in terms of thinking this is immediate however it does appear that it is on the pipeline coming down and that that will take effect uh later on could still be years in the making here but nonetheless it will come in and take effect but i don't think we're there yet based on both orano's uh, comments and then also the comments that need to be verified with respect to urinco um why don't we switch from enrichment here and talk just a little bit more on conversion notable bottleneck here Um, conversion prices are 35 ish roughly i don't have the exact in front of me but somewhere in that neighborhood here probably the most extreme bottleneck among other parts in the fuel cycle are you seeing any immediate efforts or things that can be done to increase conversion capacity in the short term because as you and i both know this is extremely constrained and this is again a multi-year problem going out to incentive price capacity expansion metropolis restarts, et cetera, that are gonna last the rest of this decade and probably beyond that. But what are you seeing on the conversion market here? What are converters doing, if anything, to help capacity at this point in time?
1: Well, as you say, conversion really is the pinch point. And that was recognized in a panel at the WNA in London. The head of the uh, Eurotom supply agency uh, said they had looked at it. And yes, the two issues were transport and conversion. Well, just to you know let your audience know because the price of conversion dropped post fukushima due to you know more inventory due to continued production conversion is a chemical process and so you put in you know natural u308 go through you know uranium it turned it into uranium hexafluoride which is a gas so the capacity, unlike enrichment, there's really no flexibility. You know, it's a flow through chemical plant. Now what happened was in 2017, the price of conversion was below $5 a kilogram U. So just use that as a benchmark. And at that time, Converdine and the Metropolis conversion plant, which is in Metropolis, Illinois, they said, "Well, we can't make money at these prices because the the long term price was also uh depressed, so what they did is they went around and bought up virtually all of the excess conversion. They gave a presentation in twenty in twenty one at the world nuclear fuel market. They said they did thirteen contracts spot midterm, and that was to be used to deliver into their existing legacy contracts that were at higher prices but they literally as they say in europe hoovered up all of the conversion so then they shut down the plant at metropolis and they said you know we will bring this back when the market calls for it and in that process the plant the nominal capacity was like Twelve thousand five hundred metric tons at the time, well, when the fluorination cells, which are part of the the chemical process, needed to be replaced, they replaced them with smaller cells because the market wasn't calling for more conversion, and it didn't make sense to invest the capital to keep the capacity at that twelve and a half thousand metric tons so it dropped physically to seven thousand five hundred so there were five thousand metric tons of capacity taken off the table the license was still there to be larger the land areas big enough to do it because they had operated at a higher rate so when this now came up post russian invasion you know, Malcolm Critchley, the president of Converdine, which is the marketing arm of the conversion facility, said, hey, here's the real world, guys. Here's what we did. And, you know, the price of conversion when the plant was shut down went from, you know, under five to around 20. You know, the term price got to, well, the one at the end of last year, the term price was 18 for conversion. And and so basically, Converdyne and, and also Arano has a new conversion plant that they're ramping up, which has gone you know relatively slowly. They're doing it very uh, safely, very consciously. But Converdyne said, "Hey, we're going to start ramping up." Uh, this was pre-Russian invasion, and we will reach the seventy you know seven thousand, seventy-five hundred metric tons by early 2023. And that's, they, they said recently, they are still on that path, okay. Um, but Malcolm in Montreal was extremely explicit. He put up a chart and he said, well, we could physically expand back to that 12,500 metric tons, but this is what it takes you know, we get our capital from Honeywell. The plant is owned by Honeywell. So we don't go to the open market, we don't issue stock. So here are the criteria that we have to meet. And it was, you know, status of the market, production cost versus the competition, uh, existence of long-term contracts at much higher prices to underwrite the capital investment and of sufficient length that, you know, we utilize that capacity. And he said, then we have to kind of bundle all that up and we have to go to Honeywell and they look at it and then they say, well, we have to compare this to alternate investments for our capital. And he said, at the time, he said, conversion does not compare very well to some of their alternative investments. But he said, and then, we've got to have a third party engineering study done. We've got to do the, you know, supply chain that they've not gone to for years, the right personnel. They apparently during the ramp up have been uh, pretty successful in hiring the necessary personnel to, to run the plant. But he said, and it has to all be done. It can't be done incrementally. We'd have to do it when the plant shuts for annual maintenance, which is like late 24. And then it, so it wouldn't be till 25 at least for them to start to ramp up to the higher production rate. And he said that decision like has to be made today almost. It's very immediate to get the, all of the criteria in place. And he said, there's no guarantee for them to meet that late 24. The implication is they can't really do that. So then it would probably be late 25 or whatever. So the, you know, we're talking for years before they can expand. And Arano said they're not really looking at it yet because the, the market wasn't calling for it. Let's put it that way. And Cameco, you know, they're I've been told that their facility is uh, limited by physical space there's developments kind of all around it. Now they can do some expansion, but not a lot. So that's kind of where conversion is. You know, Malcolm was interviewed recently and he said, well, we can either wait for the demand to show up and get the contract then, or we could take the risk. And he said, that's not gonna happen. The industry, as you point out, the supply chain is more than willing to respond but they're putting the the market risk back on the utilities because there's now kind of a, a nascent move that says, well, wait a minute, down the road, maybe the Russians become acceptable again. So if you've expanded your capacity in the West and the Russians show up and the utilities start to buy from them again, you may be left with excess capacity. So, again, I think the suppliers are being very cautious, and they're letting the the customers basically make the decision on what will happen to the Western supply chain. And so that's kind of where we are. We're just waiting. Now, again, the, the conversion price, just as another benchmark, term was, again, as I said, 18 at the end of last year, and it's now 27. And I'm hearing that there, the, the the latest uh, discussions are around at least 30, so that's kind of where conversion is going. Uh, and the spot price, you know, has gone from 16 to 38, but I'm being told there's no conversion around really, so that 38 is a bit of a fiction. The, the Western supply chain, uh, you know, I don't like to use the term abused. But the customers were favoring the lower cost Russian material, and that was an economic decision that may not be you know valid going forward. Let's put it that way,
0: yeah, again, not enough's happened, and this is inclusive of pricing. not enough's happened to motivate anybody, and so. I think that's what we're seeing here across the entire fuel cycle, but uh, it all points to very positive action here. And again, the longer it stays down, uh, the worse it's going to get because no action is going to be taken. So anyway, very good insights there, Dustin. I appreciate that. Um, Let's switch gears over here to a few more (laughs) things, then we'll wrap up. Japanese restarts. Talk about your thoughts on where they are with their inventory, given their history. (laughs) And at this stage now where the government's uh, really turned hard and is really pro restart and that we likely get into the low 20s with respect to reactors back online eventually here. Um, I'm going to say over the next two to three years, maybe a little bit more. But where do you see Japanese are in this market here? Do you see them coming back into the market in the next couple of years? And where do you think that they really focus their buying from? (laughs) Yeah, a very interesting topic, which was really on the lips of
1: a lot of people in uh, London at the the WNA. The Japanese situation, you know, kind of in general, for the last several years, their federal energy policy called for 20 to 22 percent nuclear by 2030 in their electricity generation. And that really hadn't changed. They've they've kept that in place. Now, what that means is they would need 26 to 28 big reactors operating. Now, at the time of Fukushima, there were 54 reactors in Japan. That's now dropped to, I think, 38 that could be considered operational. In other words, there were the damage units, there were some that just end, you know, got to the end of their life. So we've gone from 54 to 38 potential operating units. Now, they have 10 that have passed all the hurdles. So you've got federal review by the NRA that had to be set up after Fukushima. So that took years. So that's a Nuclear Regulatory Administration or whatever that does the initial analysis of of a reactor for restart. And so they look at all kinds of things, which I won't get into. Then it goes to the locals. In other words, the provincial governments have a say, not formally, but no one will start a reactor until the local government gives their okay. So, long story short, there's now 10 reactors that are operational, okay? The new government comes in. uh, The old one was, was not really supportive of nuclear, let's put it that way. But the new government comes in and just recently said by next summer, they want an additional seven reactors operating. Now, the ones that are on the list have all passed the federal safety review and have been approved to operate. So now the government's got to go to the local provincial governments and and argue their case. Let's put it that way. Uh, There is some skepticism. They won't make it, but that's the current plan. So if they do, then you've got 17 operating reactors. Let's pick the next two years. And then you start pushing for the next round, that would get you above that twenty. Okay, so the utilities, the inventory, you know, after Fukushima continued to grow. The utilities did take some deliveries, and I'd see numbers that the uh, the the inventory got uh, to maybe a hundred and five hundred and ten million pounds, which sounds like a lot but back when they were operating 54 reactors, they were consuming 20 million pounds a year plus, and they wanted at least four years of strategic inventory. So, you know, around 80 million pounds, maybe it was a bit less, uh, was really something they wanted to have. Okay. So during the post-Fukushima era, not much of that inventory was disposed of i i've seen a number of 5 million pounds as all uh was sold was interesting it was through japanese trading companies to utilities in eastern europe because the japanese utilities did not want to be seen forcing down the western uranium market that's how concerned they are about long-term security of supply okay Um, so now that inventory I've seen is 80, 85 million, but one of the longtime industry analysts has just done a deep dive on Japan and concluded that that uh, inventory is not spread equally amongst the, the utilities. And actually there are unfilled requirements, literally starting very near term. To where between now and 2030, 40, let's see, 30 million, 40 million pounds needs to be purchased by the Japanese utilities. Now that sounds very strange, but the first time since Fukushima at the WNA in London, Tokyo Electric, Kansai Electric, and Chubu Electric, the three largest nuclear utilities had representatives from the fuel group, had not done that for 11 years. So that was one also very interesting indicator. The other indicator is the rumor is Cameco just did a big marketing tour of all the utilities in Japan and also met with the prime minister. And so, you know, all I, I'm a confluence of events kind of guy. And you start putting this all together, and it strongly suggests the japanese will be in the term market they're not spot buyers they never have been but they'll be trying to sign new term contracts soon i think right after the first of the year and they're very long-term supply oriented uh you know one of their biggest suppliers rio tinto some of the japanese had ownership in ranger and also, they were taking big deliveries from Rossing for decades. And that producer is now gone. As you know, Rangers being decommissioned. Been in the news lately that it's costing a bit more than they budgeted for. And Rossing is owned by the Chinese. So the Japanese now have to come in and say the trading companies are already invested in Kazakh joint ventures. There's a long-term contract with the Uzbeks, which Itochu and Mitsui, I think, is involved in. So they're really going to have to look Canada, you know, North America, Africa, Australia. And, you know, you mentioned that Australia was, you know, there wouldn't be new projects. I think there will, but it just it's going to take time. And so, you know, they'll look for it, I think, in those three major regions. And like you say, in Africa, you got Niger and Namibia. But keep in mind in Namibia, you know, Rossing is 100% owned by the Chinese. Husab is 100% owned by the Chinese. So you've got Paladin that has, you know, the Chinese owned 25% of Langer. All of a sudden, you know, you've got a, well, dominant certainly now, Chinese presence there. Uh, And so some of the newer mines, I think, will get a good hard look by the Western utilities. So, yeah, demand, you know, is coming. It's not just, oh, it's the U.S. utilities. It's a little less in Europe. We'll focus on that. The others, the Emirates, you know, I met with them in London. They'll be out first quarter for delivery starting in 2025. They need to buy fuel for those soon to be four operating big units. And so we're seeing the demand picture, you know, everybody's focused on the US utilities. They're an important part of it, but it's literally global now. Like I said, the Koreans were just out. They're gonna come out, I'm sure again. You know, the Japanese, the Chinese, I think are out looking for more material. You know, UX, I had a meeting with them and they said, yeah, they think starting this quarter The term market's going to see a lot more activity, which is already higher than it was last year. For the whole year, I think there was 57 to 58 million pounds is all that was contracted last year for future delivery. And it's already 78, you know, through the end of September. And I think it'll go to 100 or more, which is then getting more towards a traditional term volume so anyway long story it's not just a u.s story
0: let's put it that way absolutely agreed with that and the japanese are a great client if you can manage oh, yeah. to win them over for your project it's an area that needs to be focused in on for people that are listening and understand that bit of it but it's a great setup here and it's good to see them come back there at the conference and that's good And Looking forward to it, because it's been nice to see some of this low-hanging fruit start to get picked with respect to the Japanese restarts, and that's just very nice. And then, of course, obviously, some of these extensions and some of these reversals of policy, which we prior discussed. But I guess that carries a little bit into final question here. I think we covered the key highlights out of the WNA conference, but the last thing was the net zero policies coming out of these governments. My opinion is generally that all of these policies are policies that probably will not be achieved unless you get real serious good people in these offices, which are hard to attract those people out of the private sectors. But what do you think about these net zero policies? These are obviously a nice tailwind, but what's your thoughts on the net zero policies and how that's affecting this market?
1: Well, I know that the, the uh, International Energy Agency, as I mentioned, did the, the study of, of how do you get here? In other words, if you assume, I think it's 78 countries have now come out with a net zero uh, objective or strategy or policy. And and so I think it's gaining, you know, what we call momentum worldwide. You know, will we get there? As you say, "Mm, probably not, but I think what's important is the perception. It's all of the big countries, we're gonna be moving in this direction. Therefore, nuclear needs to be part of this. It may be SMRs. Like in the U.S., the Department of Energy just put out a study, which is coal to nuclear. And they looked at over, I think it was about 400 coal plant sites. 157 of them are already in the decommissioning mode. And they said, you know, uh, these are the classic is to put SMRs at some of these sites, because you've got the infrastructure connection to the grid, you've got utility people, they may not be nuclear, but they understand the transmission side. And the NEI just did a survey of the US utilities, it looked like all the nuclear ones. And they said, yeah, we could see 90 gigawatts of SMRs by 2050. You know that's not uh, unreasonable. So I think that's kind of you know the, the net zero because it's now being linked to the climate change issue, whatever anybody thinks, yes, no, whatever, it doesn't matter when people say, hey, we've got to, you know, even the corporations, we've got to move in that direction. But as you point out, that International Energy Agency study basically says by the late 20s, early 30s, you've got to be building 30 big reactors a year worldwide. So, you got the Chinese saying they're going to do 10 a year, whatever. So, you know, you've got to have a real, you know, I hate the term renaissance, but a major shift toward, you know, yeah, SMRs, big twelve, fourteen hundred 1,400 megawatt units being constructed. And we'll just have, it's going to take the industry, which I think will try its best. It's got to take the investment community saying, we will bring in the bill, hundreds of billions. You know that will be required to do this so there's a lot that needs to happen obviously but yeah so coming out of london all of this was kind of being discussed so there was the most positive vibe the most positive outlook that i've seen for literally decades i mean it really was kind of amazing you know will we get there you know the president of westinghouse was on one of the panels, and he said, hey, you know, we've not been building a lot of reactors lately, so we've got supply chain issues, nuclear engineers. You know, in the U.S., there were probably 20 universities that had nuclear engineering programs, and that's probably down to five now. As you know all the issues, it's money permitting, you know, commitments, uh, on and on and on to get there, but at least now, we're starting to move down that road rather than oh nuclear is yesterday's news old technology too expensive too slow you know on and on and on and the other thing is iaea just put out a study on climate change and africa you know there was this move about we're going to build big 1200 megawatt reactors in nigeria well now that's more on the smr side You know we'll bring in a 300 instead of a 1200 and so that's much more digestible Uh, you know all of that put together suggests that it's going to be a a big issue going forward but an awful lot's got to happen
0: it's never been brighter so to speak in such of the poorest conditions and uh i guess the positive thing out of this is the equities haven't responded that well and, and in fact have been uh Generally hit pretty hard as a result of the broad market and maybe some of the leverage coming out of the sector going back September of 21. But it, it looks even better today. The equities continue at a, at a nice uh, discount from their highs, which is nice for folks that are deploying capital, which is us. It's all very constructive and good things coming. And you know, with respect to some of the reactor projects that have resumed, you know, Egypt for example, some of the interest coming out of the Middle East besides the Emirates, but some of the other countries starting to get on the bandwagon a little bit. We'll see SMRs. If we can get there with some of these deployments, that would be good to see. And with some of the smaller sizes for some of these developing nations that could potentially be more affordable as economies of scale come down here on these once they start getting deployed and you know, places like Puerto Rico that actually need them. I mean, a lot of these island nations can utilize these things. And then the future application in maritime with core power that's, that's looking at a lot of the maritime applications, which... A long way off, very constructive, a little more intelligent here as far as some of the applications and some of the policies and application for space technology, et cetera. Not to expand on that, that's well beyond the usable life of you and I, but um, like that. You know, there was a panel that had SMRs uh,
1: discussed in London and the Rolls Royce. Now, it does say Rolls Royce. People need to keep in mind that it's interesting. Some of the technologies like the Rolls Royce SMR is 470 megawatts so it's like almost half the size of a big unit and they're using existing fuel designs so no halo no you gotta you know this is a 17 by 17 bundle kind of technology and so i think they could be you know prototypes before the end of the decade i mean they are really getting a lot of attention and it's now governments You know so oh the funding won't be there private you know funding well no now it's it's the government of the uk canada you know russia and china are already building prototypes so i think the penetration of smrs and they're talking here in colorado you know in wyoming that we could start to see one you know by 29 or 30. And that's not that far off. You Keep in mind, you've got to start buying the fuel for these things well before that. You know, oh, yeah. actually, bef- yeah, before the invasion, the Russians, which are the only ones that can, can now produce HALU, high assay, low enriched, they had three contracts already and the delivery started this year. So, oh, SMRs, they're off over the horizon. No, no no no. I the fuel cycle will start to get impacted much, much sooner than the prototype is gonna come on. I think four or five years minimum. And like I said, there were some deliveries this year for
0: SMR projects. We'll just have to wait and see. Finally they're getting on with that and there's actually some serious players coming in there and not just a bunch of fluff which has happened in the prior years. But oh, yeah. it would be really nice to see Rolls-Royce roll out their international you know, export package into these sectors. Maybe they get faster you know, approvals, not having to deal. Maybe they generally avoid the U.S. at this point. And the GE Hitachi venture on that side, we'll see where the specific core and TerraPower joint venture goes with respect to Wyoming. But a little more skeptical on some of these You know, new scale keeps pushing out a bit. Not so much interested there, but to see Rolls-Royce really go after this, use normal conventional technology that's already out there, that's already off the shelf, it's really good to see some of these other players come in here. And as you said, it's starting to come into the fuel cycle, which will impact this cycle now, which is good. So Dustin, I guess to wrap up here, we've been at it for a while, but uh, last thing real quick for any of our audience who might want to meet up with you at the next industry conference or two, where will you be next and to finish off the year?
1: Well, the only uh, remaining conference is the International Uranium Fuel Seminar, which is kind of a lofty name, which will be in Las Vegas the 16th through the 18th of this month. So in other words, I'll be heading to Las Vegas, uh, you know, a week from Sunday. And unlike London, where there was only one U.S. utility constellation, the biggest, this will probably be extremely uh, active from a, a North American utility standpoint, uh, because next year, all of the conferences uh, through the WNA in London, which is will be in September, There will be a a conference in The Hague in April, and then one in, I think it's Slovenia, the world nuclear fuel market in June. So the next three conferences are all in Europe. And so I think the U.S. utilities won't be uh, nearly uh, the presence that they would be if some were being held here in the U.S. So that's kind of what it looks like. I think that I don't know where the next international uranium fuel seminar will be next year it'll be somewhere in north america but it could be a a year before a u.s utility related or supported let's say conference takes place so that's kind of what we're looking at is you know pretty quiet between now and april when the hague which is a wna nei joint conference so that's kind of what we're looking at
0: Sounds good. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, Good luck at that conference there, Dustin. Safe travels, and I appreciate you taking the time here to chat, and we'll talk again soon, my friend.
1: Okay, well, I appreciate the time, and hopefully the investors didn't get too bored with the complexities of the nuclear fuel supply chain.